Welcome to Peace Lab, the podcast focused on current events, faith, and peacemaking from a Mennonite perspective. I'm Jason Boone of the Peace and Justice Support Network, normally joined by Hannah Heinzaker, the executive editor of the Mennonite Inc. magazine and website. Not today. We had some scheduling difficulties, but Hannah does regret not being here for this great conversation we're about to have. So happy to be joined by Joel Miller and Austin Yonke. Did I say that correct, Austin? Yes, you did. I got to check myself. Uh, Really great to talk to you. There's been, not to overblow it, but almost historic things going on in Ohio and and especially around Columbus Mennonite Immigration and Sanctuary Church. You've been in the news in the Mennonite world and beyond, and you're taking time to talk to us to give us some background on what's going on and and what maybe what lies ahead. So thanks for taking time today. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Hey, let's just go ahead and set the stage here for folks who maybe haven't been following the story as much. If we're going back here to, I guess, late August, early September, some big big things started happening in terms of sanctuary movement, immigration around Columbus Mennonite Church. Um, Joel, can you just maybe just give us an overview of the story? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a story with uh, Edith Espinall and her family right in the middle of it. She's lived in Columbus for over 10 years and in the U.S. for over 20 years. Most recently, she, uh, she's been at, in and out of the U.S. A, a few times, but most recently she entered under what's called an advanced parole. So she was applying for asylum, fleeing violence in Mexico. Back in February of this year, she was asked by ICE to start having regular check-ins. And then in August, she was denied asylum and given a deportation order and given an ankle monitor, um, a GPS. And it was at that time that she started talking about seeking sanctuary. She has three children. Two of them were born in the U.S., so they're U.S. citizens. So we would be talking about a family getting broken up. She, she doesn't have any criminal record. We did not know her before this situation because of friendships we have with the immigrant advocacy community who were connected right when she started to decide to go into sanctuary. Gotcha. So, so she's uh, exploring her options having to make some hard choices and just, I guess, through relationships and friends of friends, she found out that Columbus Mennonite would be a place maybe that could walk with her through this. Yeah, it was a very quick kind of decision on, on our part. I think some of those outside groups were looking for a church that might be willing. um, And Joel was there early on in some of those conversations. Right. It wasn't a direct ask from her to us for sanctuary. Her supporters were looking for a place. And we had about a week as a congregation to process this from just from the fact of knowing this was being requested to the time when we needed to say yes or no. That was a a much quicker process than we've ever had for a significant decision. But we had uh, within that time, we, we basically had time for two congregational meetings, which lasted, you know, like 75 minutes each. And she was at the last one and able to tell her story. And we, we took a straw poll. I was pleasantly surprised by the, the overwhelming support that there was for, for moving forward with Sanctuary. That is like record time for, uh, for mental yeah. decision making, right? This is, this is fantastic. <laughs> well, well, tell us here, because uh, this idea of Sanctuary Movement, Sanctuary Church, uh, a lot of folks are interested in it, but I don't think we all know exactly what it means and what the implications are and whatnot. So you, you had to, I guess, distill this pretty quickly for the church there. Can you help our listeners understand what does this mean? So if you're going to open your doors and be a, a sanctuary church or offer sanctuary, 
what are you offering exactly? It's kind of an, an interesting problem to try to define what, what exactly it means to be a sanctuary church or a sanctuary city. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a commitment that you make without really knowing exactly what it is in some ways. But the, the reason that churches can be considered a sanctuary space for uh, immigrants facing deportation, it stems in large part from the fact that ICE has an, an internal policy that they say they won't go into sensitive places uh, such as hospitals, uh, churches, and schools. And so to the extent that they abide by this internal policy, the church is a safe space for people. It's a politically safer space in some ways, too, that, that uh, makes it more difficult for some for ICE to, you know, break down the doors of the church and, and take a mother out to deport her. And so there's a sense of safety in that sense as well. Okay, so Edith is caught in the switches here of, of these policies that so much controversy around, but she's able to find the Columbus Mennonite and, and you all are able to move fairly quickly to open your doors. And then she was actually in sanctuary at Columbus for how many days? And, and what, what was that actually like, like on a day-to-day experiential level? There's been twists and turns in this all, all along. She entered initially Labor Day evening because she had a check-in with ICE scheduled the next day. Um, because she has an ankle monitor and because there's no hiding from ICE, and when, when we say ICE, we're talking immigration, customs enforcement, at the federal agency. Part of the strategy from these supporting groups was for this to be a very public event to gain community support. So there was a press conference. ICE quickly became aware that she didn't report in. Her lawyers in conversation with ICE encouraged her to check in after that, and she was given an extended time to apply for a stay of removal, basically to, to put the pause button on her deportation order. Because it's a lot more fun to live at home with your family than cooped up in a church building, she actually left our church then for almost a month. Um, she applied for a stay of removal. That was denied. The, the time it was denied, she went in, they said, your stay of removal is denied. You can either be arrested now on the spot or buy a plane ticket back to Mexico right now. So the way this is working is that people are financing their own deportation, buying their own plane tickets. She was able to buy a plane ticket for October 10th, but then just this past Monday, she decided to re-enter the sanctuary in the church. That was on the, on the day of another scheduled check-in prior to her plane ticket. Yeah, so, so what that's looking like now, she's in the church for an indefinite amount of time. She's living here. We remodeled a basically what was a nursery space and remodeled it. We did not have a shower in the church. So we had a, a person who actually worked all Labor Day and for about a week installing a shower, preparing for her. We're, we're still in the process of organizing ourselves and working with, with community organizations to support her and her family in this because because part of the story now is that because one of her children and her husband do not have a secure status, there's been some intimidation along the way that they might be targeted for a fed-up deportation process. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I didn't realize. Yeah, the, the road keeps going on and twisting and turning. So what, and I guess she's still in contact with lawyers and some other community groups. What does the at least immediate future look like? Staying in a safe place, but are there legal remedies that we think might be able to avoid this, or what's the outlook? It seems, you know, in many ways that she's kind of at the the end of the line as far as what she can try to get through working with ICE and uh, in order to try to stay here in Columbus with her family. So in a lot of ways, sanctuary is kind of her only option as far as trying to stay here. There are some other kind of 
possibilities. One one that I know of is the I believe it's called an I-130, which because she now has a she has a U.S. citizen child who is 21 years of age just recently. Actually, since the first time we we took her into sanctuary, he turned 21 um, just then. I guess that would have been September. And so that opens up the possibility that he can file on her behalf for permanent residency. This process, I think, can take anywhere from months to years. Uh, so, and it's uh, and it's not a, a guaranteed kind of kind of thing. Unreal. So, yes, yeah, so there are a few options open down the road, but uh, but for right now, she just has to be be in the church and her family. They're still in the community in their homes. I take it where, wherever they were residing, and just sort of in limbo as well. They are um, part of our role here is just providing space and taking our cues from from Edith and her family as far as what it means. For them to be in sanctuary so they will at times uh, stay in our church building i think her husband has stayed here the last few nights he's he has a job so he's out during the day and that's right it's it's open-ended i'm curious you you talked about uh, i guess it seemed that part of the tactic is to make this as public as possible you know to let everyone know this is what's happening this this community member is being targeted by these practices and, and these agencies and whatnot and you mentioned maybe there was some intimidation or pressure towards the family. Uh, how about to the church? Like, has ICE been in touch with the church? Well, what's the relationship? Okay, or they don't necessarily want to want to interface with you all at this point. Yeah, we haven't we haven't been in touch with with ICE. We haven't been in conversations with with their office at all. They've they've only been in touch with their legal team. Gotcha, gotcha. Wow. So in in the midst of a, you know, Columbus is a healthy peace and justice church and, and you're kind of in the midst of where you are now. I'm, I'm curious from just from the congregational perspective, too, uh, again, as this issue is on a lot of people's minds and they're trying to process maybe if, if their church wants to, to be involved in something like this. I don't know. What, what are the lessons along the way that you're learning and that you continue to learn that you would want to pass on to other churches, maybe who are thinking about what their place might be as they advocate for for just immigration in these current times. Here's a encouragement for congregations to have anniversary celebrations <laughs> because um, two days before we learned about Edith, before we even knew she existed, um, we celebrated our 55 year anniversary. We had a weekend celebration and we just told stories uh, about, you know, I mean, this is what happened to anniversary celebrations. You talk about stories and what the congregation has done. One of the big stories was the congregation's involvement in sanctuary back in the eighties which did not involve posting somebody in the building, but just advocating for somebody in the community. So we had that story fresh in our minds when we learned about Edith, and I have no doubt that it impacted our ability to make a rapid decision because it felt like, look, this is, we, we've done things like this. This is part of who we are. That's, that's one lesson is just the importance of telling stories. And I think there was also, there was a sense and maybe kind of unspoken perhaps in, in the church, but you know, we have this sign that maybe you're familiar with that has kind of three colors and three languages says, you know, no matter where you're from, we're glad you're our neighbor. Um, and we, in the lawn, right at the church. And, you know, I have one at home and there, I see them around and I believe they have Mennonite origins actually. Yeah. And in, in any case, so what, you know, we can put the sign out, but, and it's kind of an outward proclamation of who we hope to be. And what does that look like then 
um, as far as our actions as a church, um, the way that we kind of work as a collective group. And so I think both having those stories about our past uh, working in sanctuary um, and having that kind of sign and the idea that it stands for in our heads, I think that that made this for a very kind of a receptive environment for for this idea. And and you know we kind of just jumped in and said you know we took took a very literal kind of leap of faith you know saying we we'd love to have more time to do this but we believe this is important and we're just going to go for it and and we're still kind of in the process of retroactively trying to figure out what does this what exactly does this mean for us and and what, how best can we provide for for Edith. That's great. Yeah, th- those signs are, are, you know, they spread, they went viral, however you want to say it, and, and they're good. And I guess, you know, the cynical view of it is, well, you know, what effort does it take to put a sign out? But if that's an aspiration and, and, and you're going to move into it and grow into it, then, well, well, that's fantastic. And that seems what's happening at Columbus. You're, you're building on great history. I, I guess that's another thing, too, for folks listening to this. You'd put yourself in a position where those other community groups knew to contact you, right? or at least you were in the conversations there. Can you share a little bit maybe on, from your perspective, Joel, maybe as pastors, what's your role in that, or, or Austin, your role in the church? How do you start to, to put yourself in a position where you can be someone that folks are called on and you have to make these rapid decisions and you can uh, love your neighbor in tangible ways? Yeah, this I think this really speaks to the importance of just building relationships in the community for their own sake and having um, having partnerships, ecumenical cooperation, interfaith work. And I do want to, I want to emphasize that the story here is not just the story of Columbus Mennonite taking a woman into sanctuary. It's the story of a faith community. And so we have, um, just to paint a little picture here. So there's an organization that pretty much handles all media contacts. Um, and they've been at the table from the beginning. They've arranged for all three local news cha- uh, news channels. They've arranged for the, the Columbus Dispatch, the main newspaper in town. There's someone who's pretty much committing his whole time to to this to to the sanctuary work. Um, there uh, there's an organization that works with social basically just social workers who have been supporting her and accompanying her to to check ins. Um, and there are congregations that have been at the table with us. And um, so, for example, First Unitarian Universalist Church here has taken up all responsibilities for arranging meals, arranging and delivering meals. And uh, they're going to be the fundraising home. And so when people say, how can I help? We send them to the meal train that First UU has set up. And when people say, you know, where can I give? So... The, the partnerships that were the, the relationships that that were already there are crystal are, are forming now around the sanctuary action. Mm. That, that's a very interesting picture you painted, and I guess it gets to a, to a point uh, that that we struggle with as peacemakers and as a, as a peace church when you're thinking about these powers and principalities like unjust immigration, and you think about ICE, and you say, "Well, what are we going to do? You know, we're 50 people or 100 people. How do we, you know, how, how do we stand for justice in the face of this?" And I guess part of your story is illustrating. Well, no, it's being part of a larger community wherever you are in these relationships. And, and all of a sudden, you, you have your power to do good is, is increased by those relationships and multiplied. And that's, um, that seems to be a, a real lesson that's coming from what you're doing. Because yeah, we're, we're talking, we're obviously interested in, in your experience as, uh, as a Mennonite church, but part of your community is being peacemakers. That seems to be 
a big part of your witness and how you're living out your, your peacemaking in relationship with other folks in the community. Is, is that something that, uh, and maybe going back to the history a little bit, that's always been in place where Columbus has been in the community, you know, building those relationships. Has this been something that's, that's happened more recently um, that you've had to sort of take some intention to and say, okay, we're going to intentionally get out there and, and meet our, our friends down the road at the Universalist Church, and we're going to intentionally meet some other folks. How does one start to do that and, and put themselves in, in those webs of community relationships that can be helpful in times like these? Uh, the, ch the church has been in the community from the beginning, I would say, and it, it, it has, I've been here four years, so I can speak best to those four years that, that were a part of a 40 congregation organization in the county that works together on justice related issues. I felt like those have increased, but, but that's just a part of who the congregation has been. I also want to say, though, to add to what I previously mentioned, I think that story also testifies to the fact that if you're a congregation maybe you don't have a shower or you, you just don't have the facility to be a host congregation. There is a role to play in the sanctuary movement or in supporting immigrants because as people who are the hosts, we know how dependent we are on people showing up for prayer vigils, um, on people providing meals. And so just because you're a congregation that isn't hosting someone doesn't mean you're not or can't be involved. Right. And it's, it was interesting to, between the time that we took her in the first time and the time that she came in most recently, you know, there was a lot of organizing around what does sanctuary look like if, if you're not in the church anymore? Um, and how, how do we kind of extend our notion of what that, that might look like? And, you know, can we show up to her ICE check-ins and be kind of a supportive presence there? So, yeah, I think there, there are ways of conceiving of sanctuary uh, that kind of go beyond just thinking about having a person in a certain place, um, but ways of getting involved more expansively. It seems like the power of the, of the community relationships you've built, that, that's really been helpful in, in helping you find your place in that. Are there sort of national organizations or, you know, just you know, getting you know, pretty in the weeds, I guess, here, but are there websites or national organizations that you've looked to to get information about this during this time, or has it primarily been relying on the expertise of the, the local groups on the ground? Um, Church World Service and Faith and Public Life are two national organizations. Faith and Public Life has state chapters, and we're fortunate enough to be one of those states. They, they, they're handling the media contacts. Church World Service was on a, a video conference the day that Edith decided to enter sanctuary. And there's someone, Austin and I were just talking to this morning, who came in from, uh, where was he most Arizona, recently? I think. He's living in Arizona, and I think maybe came in most recently from Detroit, who's, who's involved. So those are just a couple of national organizations. No, that, that's great, great to hear, again, because a lot of us, uh, we're just not in it. You don't know even where to start to put your steps, you know, to, to look to know more. And if there are a couple of national places you can start to gain information, and then it seems like a, the big lesson is, in your community, starting to make those relationships and connections, that's the other big step. I, I'm just wondering if you're moving very fast here, um, but have you had time to reflect uh, just on, on the impact of this and sort of what, is it, what does this mean for, for you individually and, and as a church in your walk as peacemakers? We're in this you know, very tumultuous, fractious time as a nation. It's tough to find your place. It's tough to find... Uh, how you're going to be a presence and a you know a little foretaste of the kingdom, as it were, as peacemakers. But but speaking from that Mennonite perspective, you know what we've gone through these different eras and changes and quieted the land and you know peace can mean a lot of different things. But 
I'm wondering if, if you've had time to reflect just as individuals or as a church on, on the importance of what you've been doing as a part of your peace witness. And how does this fit in with your faith? How, how is this uh, an expression of your peace and justice values and ethics? I don't know if things have been moving very fast, but uh, any reflection you've had on that and, and what this means just in your journey of following in the footsteps of, of Jesus and on the, on the path of peacemaking? Yeah. You know, every Sunday, as, as long as I've been here, and I've been here about five years, and I think this has been a tradition in, in our church for a long time, uh, even before my arrival, we light a candle that reminds us that, you know, there's conflict in the world, and we call it our, our peace candle. Um, and it's a part of our service every every Sunday. Again, I think it's it's been kind of an interesting transformation in some ways about thinking thinking about what what acting for peace looks like in in our community taking these kind of symbols and then and again seeing how does how might this translate into the way we live our lives sometimes the the mennonite kind of peace ethic can be interpreted simply as saying well you know i would never hit anybody personally you know if someone was coming at me which sure that's 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 great but i think there's kind of a deeper engagement with that idea of what does it look like to make peace in your community and to not only about you as an individual, but what does it look like as a church? Um, and, you know, the story about our community coming together to give and create peace and justice in, in our community. And I think that's been a useful kind of journey that we've been on. Also, this, I mean, this word sanctuary is rich for, for the intersection that it has with peace, peaceableness, and um, and peacemaking, especially for a tradition uh, that has never emphasized the sacredness of buildings. Hymn the worship book number one. What is this place? Uh, it, you know, it's just a it's just a wall and a roof, and we're we're just we're just meeting here. It's all about the people. Um, so it's really interesting to be in a position where the sanctity of place has a political meaning that we're in some ways kind of playing uh, for we're accepting that in some ways but we're also um you know what does it mean to be sanctuary people um what is it what is the inward journey of sanctuary and what do we allow to in, inhabit ourselves that we maybe need to clear out and and, and the inward role of, of peacemaking and sanctuary and what i'm finding as, as a pastor someone who thinks about this trying to think about this biblically and theologically is how rich the concept of sanctuary is it's been in the process of actually enacting that that the richness is coming out what I'm hearing from you, Joel and Austin, as well, is that you know, this is a community thing in the largest terms. You're connected in the in the broader community, the faith community, the legal community, but then also you know, on the more micro level at Columbus Mennonite, this has taken a lot of people and it's sort of all hands on deck. This is not a situation where I guess the church says, hey, Joel, you're the pastor. Go take care of this for us. Right. It wouldn't happen that way. So how is that dynamic played out um, of leadership really having a lot of hands? in a project this big. Yeah, that was actually one of the main concerns that came up in our very short process in time was we don't want to overburden staff. And so from the beginning, we had the understanding that if this was going to work, people were going to need to step up to do that. And Austin is, is somebody who's done that and would have some insights into what that's taken as someone who doesn't get a paycheck out of this. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's been good, really. Uh, I, so I'm primarily working on finishing a dissertation right now, and that means in part that I, I'm flexible enough. And when, when we started having these meetings talking about 
would we be able to bring in this person? And there were concerns about, is this going to just be overburden, overburdening our staff members? And I was thinking, you know, someone, someone really needs to kind of step up and, and be, you know, be kind of a, a person that can take on some of these added uh, roles that are going to need to be filled as, as we take somebody in. Um, and then I thought, well, maybe I can do that. <laughs> I've got some flexibility. Um, and, and again, this kind of, as we were flying by the seat of our pants, so to speak, uh, I just kind of went up to Joel after one of the congregational meetings and said, hey, you know, I want to be involved uh, as, as much as I can. You know, I want to try to take the burden off of the staff and kind of filled in from, from there. And really, uh, a lot of what I did early on was trying to organize our efforts between, uh, and it wasn't just, just me. I, I was there around, but there were a lot of volunteers from the church and everybody trying to, you know, there's a lot of energy behind this that just needed a way to kind of get organized to make things happen. And so I, that's kind of the role that I, that I fell into. There's a lot more to come. I, I, we can tell from this story and uh, yeah, the Mennonite does great coverage and we're, we're, we're all going to continue to read about it. Bless you guys. Bless the, the church there and the community there for what you're doing. I uh, want to offer it up for any final thoughts you might have to, to folks listening out here about sanctuary or some of these issues we've been talking about. Anything you want to sign us off on, we're, we're glad to hear. But thanks again for taking time in the middle of everything that's going on to talk to us. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Yeah, this is this is where the preacher says, okay, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. <laughs> so that's my parting words are simply that there are many ways to be sanctuary people. And this is a really important movement of our time. I hope that we not too narrowly define it as so people define themselves out of it. But for, for listeners to consider how, how are you a sanctuary person? How can your congregation be a sanctuary congregation in whatever form? How can you partner with, with friends, with neighbors, with local folks? Pray for us and other congregations that are in the middle of this. Let's consider this the work of the body together. Fantastic words to end on. Thank you again, Joel, Austin. Continued blessings in your work. Hopefully we'll catch up with you again soon and hear more about how this is all playing out. Thanks. Sounds good. Thanks, Jason. Jason.